listening to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast with your hosts, John and Darren. Welcome to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. I'm your host, John, and I'm here with my co-host, Darren. And for this episode, we will be discussing Ozzy Osbourne's first live album, Speak of the Devil, or in the UK, titled Talk of the Devil. This album would have its fair share of drama surrounding its creation. And as with all things Ozzy during this period of his career, certain details remain fuzzy. But let's backtrack for a moment and look back on some of the events leading up to this album's creation. After the tragic death of guitarist Randy Rhodes on March 12, 1982, Ozzy would enlist the temporary services of former Gillen Band guitarist Bernie Torme. Torme would only play a handful of shows before departing and being replaced by future Night Ranger guitarist Brad Gillis. Brad would help Ozzy finish the dates for the Diary of a Madman tour, as well as help him record the live album Speak of the Devil. Brad Gillis can also be seen and heard on the Speak of the Devil live DVD. This live concert would feature none of the songs from the live album of the same name, though. The live album Speak of the Devil would be a problematic one from its inception. Born out of a desire for management to cash in on Ozzy's past with Black Sabbath and acting as a contractual obligation to Jet Records, members of Ozzy's band at the time, including Randy Rhodes, were unhappy at the idea of an album entirely consisting of Black Sabbath covers. Originally intended to be recorded in Toronto, the album would be delayed with the sudden death of Randy Rhodes. With Brad Gillis now in the band, recording of the All Sabbaths Covers live album would continue. The band would only have five days to rehearse the material, with Ozzy only joining the band during sound check on the day of the first show. The final songs would be pulled from two performances at the Ritz in New York on September 26th and 27th, 1982. Max Norman would do the final mixing of the album and has stated in interviews that he had the band perform an entire extra show during the day with no audience to use as a backup in case something couldn't be used from one of the evening's performances. Max Norman believes three of the songs on the album were used from this daytime audience-less show, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath being the only one confirmed, the rest left to mystery. Despite all the drama and difficulties surrounding the album, the final result was an energetic live performance in front of a crazy crowd in an intimate venue. Chock full of cool Sabbath deep cuts like Symptom of the Universe, Never Say Die, The Wizard, amongst classics like Paranoid, Iron Man, Children of the Grave, and others, it's an album that still holds a unique place in Ozzy's catalog. All right, Darren, uh, last time we left off, uh, Diary of a Madman, Randy Rhodes had passed away. We sort of briefly talked at the last episode about Brad Gillis uh, coming into the band, but I guess first, what's your memories of... Uh, of Speak of the Devil and getting that album, hearing it for the first time? Um, <clears throat> like anything else that came out in and around that time, I, I wasn't aware of when, it, when the release date was. So I just saw it when I went to the record store and there it was on the wall. Um, of course the album cover, it 
similar. I mean, I just, you look at it and I mean, it's just like for a teenager, it's eye candy. I mean, you have, you know, the, the blood, the, the dripping logos, you have the bat, you have the, you know, the, the arch around the picture of Ozzy that has like the runes, which um, all part of the graphic design work done by Steve Crusher Jewel, who was doing stuff for Kerrang! Magazine. But it's really, uh, the album cover is really stimulating. And you turn it over and there's a picture of the band and there's more of this font and runes and everything. And it was really exciting. I remember seeing it and looking at it and being like, oh, my God. And I, I was with my friend and I didn't have the money to buy it. But I was like, I had to have it immediately. So my friend's mom lent me the money to buy the record so we can get it. <laughs> and then when I got home, then she was reimbursed. But I mean, I, it was something that was so cool. I had to have it immediately. Um, I was a bit taken back by the fact that it was all Black Sabbath songs. That was sort of out of left field, but I didn't care. I mean, I thought that was even cooler. Um, and I took to it instantly. I, I liked the way that it sounded. I thought the, the production was nice and clear. Uh, the performances were on point. Um, I, I loved the album when I got it. And uh, I, I can't necessarily say that it's gotten better over time. It hasn't gotten worse. I don't really listen to it very often. Uh, one of the reasons is because even though I like what Brad Gillis, the way that he performs the songs and I like the production, uh, it's, a little, it's a little odd hearing these songs without Tony Iommi's guitar. Ozzy's voice sounds great. Uh, I know that it was overdubbed in the studio these weren't the actual vocal tracks that were recorded between the two nights at the Ritz. Um, but most of the music, from what I understand, and I, and I do have the bootlegs, I've heard them, and I, and I can sort of tell, but most of the, the musical tracks were taken from the first night. I think it was the month, was, was it June or July? I know you said that in the intro, but I, I kind of spaced on that. Was it June or July? Uh... Uh, I don't remember. 20, to look it up. 26th and the 27th and most of the performance musical performances were, were taken from the 26th um like you said the band had about five days to uh to learn the songs and then they were off and running and and, and they played at the ritz and i i was at the ritz a couple times in new york city and it's um it's not a tiny venue it's not like it's a dive bar or anything by, by any stretch but it, it's for an aussie show yeah it's, it's pretty small so yeah, it's called so, Webster Hall now, isn't it? Oh, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Isn't, I never knew. What I think it is. Yeah, I think it became Webster Hall. And uh, September 26th and 27th, 1980. September, okay. Two yeah. was the date that, uh, or is it 83? 82. September 86, 86, 86. 27th were the dates that it was recorded. <clears throat> yeah, because Brad was out by, uh, by 83. But anyway, um, yeah, I don't like it. I listened to it the other night, getting prepped for this, and uh, I enjoyed it. I think, I think it sounds cool. You know, I'm not going to get too, uh, too weird about it or possessive about the Black Sabbath songs. Knowing the backstory, though, it, it, it's a little bit um, consistent with some of the issues I have with, with management um, and not so much in a, uh, in a way that I consider is unfair to the musicians involved, but in a way that I feel is unfair to the fans. Um, my my takeaway from this it was 30 years later 40 years later 39 years later 
is that I, I think that the fans were probably would have rather have had a Randy live album. Um, but supposedly, well, this was in the planning stages as you, in, in your intro, even when Randy was in the band. But after the demise of, of Randy Rose, Rhodes, it would have probably have been interesting to have a live Randy Rhodes album, but they said that it, they didn't feel it was very tactful. I don't think tact had anything to do with it. Um, this is not an organization that's known for its tact. <laughs> yeah. And I think if you're going to have the audacity to have Ozzy sing songs after he's two albums, two studio albums into his career, you're going to have the audacity to have him go back in time and sing all these songs from his former band when there is some little bit of rivalry, there's a little bit of animosity, then I don't think you'd have any compunction to put out a live album with a guitarist that's recently deceased. I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying. So I don't believe that it was the idea to have the, the Randy, Randy Rhodes live album was shelved due to good taste because this clearly this album was not done in, in good taste. Uh, what it was, was it was a way for Sharon to put the stones to her, her father. They did owe two more albums for Jet Records. That's why this is a double album. They could actually, even though it's one album, it's a, it's a single release double album because it is actually two records. It did fulfill the requirements or the, or the, yeah. the, the last requirement for the, for the record label contract. And they are already brewing this, this, deal with cbs records which was i guess the big daddy of of jet jet was under cbs but they sharon wanted to uh to get away from uh, jet records and she basically threw jet records some scraps she constructed this idea to basically not give the good material to jet records that they were going to hang on to the randy live stuff and release it at a later date but but fulfill their, you know, their, their obligation by putting this out. And so getting back to what I'm saying about the fans, um, I, I think that was like, like I said, when, when I got it, it didn't, it didn't bother me. In retrospect, I, I think that it was one of those decisions that was made like, oh, we'll just, we'll just do what we want to do from a business standpoint. And it doesn't really matter what the fans would want we're not even gonna, i mean to to think that the fans wouldn't be taken back with an album that was comprised entirely of black sabbath material is a little short-sighted or just careless i mean and that's that that's the problem that i have with it i i, I think that a lot of the the decisions that were made in and around this time from the management were pretty self-centered and not as fan friendly as they could have been. Um, other things, you know, were a little bit aggressive from the managerial aspect with the image here. The album cover obviously is sort of an ode to Ozzy and the bat. We're exploiting the whole bat incident. We have a bat on the top of the arch of the album cover, you know, and then we have this jelly stuff coming out of his mouth, which <laughs> we could only presume would be maybe the remnants of a bat. <laughs> anyway um so 
definitely milking the image, the madman image. This is another extension of Ozzy's persona that was sort of like contrived along the way, sometime after Blizzard of Oz manifested itself for the first time on the cover of Diary of a Madman. He was sort of continuing with that as, you know, a, an extension of Ozzy's fabricated persona of this, you know, horror madman type of thing. But it works and it's cool. So. Yeah, my experience uh, discovering this was similar to you. It just sort of showed up, you know, back then you didn't know when things were going to be released. They just seemed to show up. And I can't remember exactly. I was full into Ozzy at that point. And I'm pretty sure, you know, this album came out a month, I believe, before Live Evil, which we're going to get to Live Evil in the next episode. So I believe I had this before Live Evil. And I don't think I had Live at Last yet at this point. I'm pretty sure I didn't have Live at Last. So this was the first time for me to hear Ozzy live. Actually, that's not true. I had recorded the King Biscuit Flower Hour yeah. with Randy, and I had that on tape. I recorded that off the radio. But this was the first time I heard him doing this many Black Sabbath songs. At the time, I thought Rudy Sarso and Tommy Aldridge had played on Diary of a Madman because they're listed as playing on Diary of a Madman before the Internet. You know, you can. So here I thought that they were like staples of the band. Again, not having a lot of information. I didn't know that Brad Gillis was just a temporary uh, fill in type of thing. I thought that maybe Brad was going to be the new. Uh, here's here's the new Ozzy Osbourne guitarist. I was uh, fine with the Sabbath covers. I thought that uh, at, this, at this point, I think I had all the Black Sabbath albums. Uh, I loved the set list. It sounded live. It had a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I do feel kind of like you when, when I got a little older and was able to read the backstory on this album. It was kind of like one of those... Uh, Santa Claus is not real moments or professional <laughs> wrestling is not real. <laughs> you know? When I was 10 years old, I thought professional wrestling was real. Well, yeah. I thought that Ozzy really sang on this record. And I thought, you know, and then all of a sudden later on, you read that, oh man, he redid all the vocals for it and everything. And you, you just read about all the drama around it. And to that point, and I alluded to it in the intro, you talked a little bit about it. You know, this was an album that, was just born out of it just had a cloud over it right, right. from the beginning uh it was something like you mentioned that the management wanted to do this uh for for the reason that you mentioned the jet records thing to get out of the contractual obligation with jet records and another thing is that uh the publishing rights to the black sabbath back catalog had were now uh Right. back to the band members. So they all stood to gain from, by putting out a new album with Black Sabbath songs on it, they would also be getting money from this back catalog. And that's someone we'll get into this with, with Live Evil, maybe part of the motivation for, for Live Evil also. But, but that was something in it too. And interestingly, all right. So when Randy's in the band, Randy, this was apparently a real sticking point with Randy. He was not a Black Sabbath fan. 
uh, one of the few rare audio interviews you can hear with Randy. Uh, he, this, uh, an interviewer asked him that, and I think his reply was, I was never a fan. Let's move on to the next question when asked about if he liked black, what he thought about Black Sabbath. So Randy wasn't a Black Sabbath fan. And the idea of doing an album here, here and you know, you can imagine this, the band has recorded two albums. Ozzy is trying to create a new career, a new Ozzy Osbourne solo career. And all of a sudden you want to go back to this band that you've been bad mouthing and everything. And you want to go back and do an album full of black Sabbath covers. So Randy was totally against it. And apparently it was, uh, there was so much tension with this that, uh, it, it was it was something really difficult between Ozzy and Randy. And there's stories out there, rumors out there that Ozzy even punched Randy over this. You know, they got into an actual fist fight over this. And Randy had basically said, you know, he had eventually given in and said, all right, I'll do this, but I'm out. You know, mm -hmm. this is my he was he I guess he was contracted too for these two more albums if you do this. I'm out. And then, of course, you know, uh, and also the other guys in the band, Tommy Aldridge and Rudy Sarzo, also felt the same way. And so it, it created a lot of tension around it. And then, of course, Randy passes and uh, they're mourning that, yet they, they still have this album. And there were talks, uh, Rudy said the guy Aldridge and Gillis and Sarzo uh, say that the original plan was is that they were going to have three cuts featuring randy which would have been yeah. paranoid iron man and children of the grave which right. are the three sabbath songs that they did when randy was in the band and so gillis and the rest of the, the guys they said they barely rehearsed those songs because they were under the impression that don't worry about those three we're going to yeah. use and then it was decided later that after the show that all right we're just going to save the randy stuff for an album later on and we're going to do this and then on top of it you know and here's here's again this thing like you know you find out wrestling's not real you feel like your 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 bubble has burst a little bit as a as a kid uh doing the research for this you know reading about how basically ozzy well he didn't he didn't show up according to rudy sarzo and the other guys in the band he never even showed up to rehearse the record uh he showed up the day of the sound check and was reading from a notebook. And you mentioned earlier that you have the bootlegs for this show. Any, anyone out there who's interested, if you just go on YouTube and type in Ozzy at the Ritz, you'll hear the live, the real live uh, versions of this. And, uh, you know, Ozzy's voice is pretty rough in a lot of the spots, but so it's, it's an album that, you know, there was just a lot of uh, drama around it. And to this day, it's it's an album that is almost ignored by the Ozzy camp. For instance, you cannot find it's not on the streaming services. For instance, they haven't put it on the streaming services. And I'm guessing that it's probably a business thing, because, again, this album was given to Jet Records. They probably don't make anything off of the physical sales of it. They probably make publishing you know, but off of the physical sales, it probably went to Don Arden to get out of the Jet Records contract. And so the Ozzy camp sort of dismisses it. Ozzy always talks it down. Even if you listen to interviews with Max Norman, Max Norman talks about how it was mixed like 
literally on the fly. They were mixing one side of the record. They'd get one side done, send it to the pressing plant, start working on side two, send that. I mean, it was just done in a complete rush. All that being said, though, in the end, I haven't listened to this in a while, threw the records on. It's a fun record. It sounds live outside of Ozzy's vocals. We know better now. I mean, his vocals are double tracked on the whole thing. So that's a dead giveaway. But the band sounds live. It's it's a fun record. The set list is fun. It, it, you can hear the crowd. It, it sounds like you're in the middle of the room. Considering, according to Max Norman, it was done very quickly. It sounds really live. It's got a real energetic kind of vibe to it. And maybe that's because the band was a bit under rehearsed and they were sort of on the edge of their seats for the whole show. So it gave it more of a, uh, you know, a, an intense feeling to it or something. But I just think it's, 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 it's a fun record and it's, it's something that it really brought me back at the time. Again, not having any live Ozzy material. I played this to death, you know, back in the day and uh, we're going to get into live evil, but you know, maybe we'll save, the verdict for what I prefer, either speak of the devil or live evil, but uh, I don't know. Live, I think it is. It is a fun record. It's kind of a shame that it's it's gotten this uh, that the Ozzy camp just sort of just ignores its existence, basically. And uh, it's it's fun. And also, I, I like Brad Gillis. I like Brad Gillis's tone. I admit, like you, it's a little bizarre not hearing Tony Iommi playing these songs, uh, but it kind of makes me wonder what would have happened if Brad Gillis had stuck around for a studio record. But as it stands, it's it's an interesting little curious piece of, of Ozzy's history. And there's just so much sort of story around it. And again, back to Ozzy and this time in his career, it's, it's some of this stuff is so fuzzy. Ozzy tells the story one way, Rudy Sarzo tells it another, Max Norman has a little bit of a different take on it. You know, it's just like you're, nobody knows exactly for sure exactly what, what happened with this. But, but I think in the end, it's, it's a fun record. And, uh, you know, at the time, I think it sold really well. From what I understand, it sold well in the U.S., you know, it was a pretty successful thing for Ozzy. He was coming off of a, his career was was on the upswing at this point. And so, you know, Speak of the Devil just just helped, helped move him along, like you said, with the album cover. At this point, he's fully playing into the bat-eating madman uh, persona. So... Uh, I wasn't aware that the album was ignored by the Ozzy camp. Uh, I know it was remastered and re-released in the, uh, around 2005, I think. Don't hold me to that. Yeah, when they did those remastered series, I, I, it yeah, was right around that time. They did put it out then, but for... I don't think it's in print right now, or if it is, it's hard to find. And it's, it's just for whatever reason, they, whereas they've remastered, for instance, Blizzard and Diary and, and all those other albums multiple times. Speak of the Devil, it's, it got that one remaster treatment, but I don't know if it's been remastered or anything done with it since then. No, I don't think it has, but um, it, it's kind of a, uh... Well, neither was Blizzard and Diary until they did the box set, which came out in 2011. So from the time that I think it was Epic, maybe Legacy, don't hold me to that. They all were released in and around the same time. Um, and then Blizzard and Diary, not again until 2011. And then 
after that, I think we've gotten a couple more reissues of both albums within the last few years, including like a new Walmart edition of, of Diary of a Madman. But uh, no, uh, Bark at the Moon and uh, Speak of the Devil haven't been updated or reissued as many times as Blizzard and Diary. Uh, yeah, to, so to your point about the songs that Randy would play with Ozzy being left off or being told to the band that they wouldn't be on the album and then they, they were on it anyway. Uh, yeah, I, so they were, they were supposedly disappointed by that because I, mean, I think Rudy had said that he felt his performance was pretty lackluster. But when I listened to them, I think they sound good. I think they, they have a lot of energy, uh, maybe more so than some of the other songs, which seem a little bit more uh, even paced, uh, more schooled, more probably to put myself in the mindset of where they must have been at the time, probably more uh, thought out thinking, okay, yeah, this is going to be recorded arrangement stuff like that. Yeah. You know, the, the um, children of the grave, Iron Man and paranoid are more like, we know this, we're just going to rock it out. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and the crowd sound, like you mentioned, it sounds real. It sounds like the size crowd that would have been at a place like the Ritz. It does. It's not like they said it was recorded at the Ritz and they have like a huge like Wembley Hall audience <laughs> audience track, like a kiss situation track. where there's yeah. Just like, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's it's, it's uh, realistic from that standpoint, and you know, you can actually hear like people's voices and stuff. Yeah, not, yeah, not exactly. the same way you would if it was an audience recording, but you you can hear there's it, it sounds like a smaller crowd. Some of Ozzy's ad libbed. Uh, uh, in between song things were, were a little out of character. But, who remembers you know, the Fillmore East? Yeah, who remembers <laughs> the Fillmore East, man? <laughs> and he plays. He says that before he went into the Wizard and said something to the effect I don't remember exactly. I haven't game. played this since 1972. Last time we played it was at the Fillmore East. Yeah, I don't, they never played at the Fillmore East. They don't, they've never played it at all. Not that I can recall. I mean, it was, certainly wasn't on you know anything from 1969 to 1971 that I have, um, and the set list was pretty consistent in and around that time. Yeah, yeah. 69 was a little bit more ad lib. There weren't as many songs. You know, the Dumfries thing, of course, is a good uh, chronicle of, of where they were at that time, and there were some ad libs. Some of the songs that they did have were extended with you know uh, improvisational parts and things like that. But I don't remember the Wizard ever being played, which is cool for the album. Speak of the devil, it's cool to hear the wizard. Um, you can hear there's probably two harmonica tracks. There's the canned one from the original studio recording that you can hear probably yeah. a little louder than the one that's just slightly pulled back in the background, which sounds okay. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's harmonica, so I don't know if it's in the same tuning. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you can hear the two harmonica tracks. So apparently he did try to, to give it a whirl when he was playing it live. Um, and the band, one of the things uh, that they talked about was, you know, what you mentioned, you mentioned a lot about the background of this album, uh, but to uh, expand on it a little bit, Isaac Sharon told, they, they weren't really happy with the amount of time that they had to prepare for this. Now, Randy was gone. And, and you, as you mentioned, Randy, there was a point of contention between Randy and Ozzy. And I, there is a rumor that there was actually like a physical altercation, which I don't doubt. 
considering Ozzy's state of mind and you know his substance abuse issues at the time. But yeah, Randy was uh, on record as saying that. Well, I don't know if it's actually on record, but it's been well documented that Randy had said that this would be it. He was going to do this. Okay, I'm going to do it, but then I'm done. Uh, Randy, of course, died, but the plans still went forward with this. Um, Brad Gillis, of course, was just a willing participant. He's a hired gun, basically, temporary guitar player, learned the songs, plays them really well. He doesn't try to do exactly the, play them the, exactly the way that Tony Iommi does, which I think is a bonus um, and also kind of tasteful in a way. Uh, he does bring his own slant to the songs. I like what, the way he plays um, Snowblind in particular. Um, looking over the track listing here, I'm sure we're going to go into a track by track uh, rundown. But I like the way he plays Snowblind. Fairies Wear Boots is cool. I like the way he plays War Pigs. They're just slightly different from the way that we're used to hearing them on the Black Sabbath records. And I appreciate that. I think it gives it a, in spite of the way that this was ill-conceived, I think it does give it an Ozzy Osbourne solo band feel. And I appreciate yeah. that. So even though, you know, these are Black Sabbath songs, it, it does kind of, because of Brad, and, and I like the way that, that Rudy's bass sounds on it. Rudy's bass is in the mix. It pops through. You could hear his, his licks. I don't know. I'm not a bass player. I've never heard anything about Rudy Sarzo necessarily being a good bass player. I know that he's been with some pretty popular bands, this one in particular. But this is... And I guess it's really the first time we've we've actually heard Rudy in, in with Ozzy because I've you know even though we yeah. thought you know at, at in, this time at this in time. fact this is the first this might be like the first recorded thing that that Rudy yeah ever did because he didn't play on Diary of a Madman he 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 had come from you know L A and the early version of Choir Riot but yeah he's all over this album he does all these like bass fills I think of like in Symptom of the Universe when those drum fills yeah. are going on he's playing all these bass yeah. fills all over so yeah he's very active he's very busy and and like you said Brad I, I think does add a, a cool element like I think about like in The Wizard he does some like you know he's famous for the whammy bar things and so he throws some of those in there i actually think they really cut loose on and maybe this is again because they thought that they weren't going to use these so they just threw caution to the wind but iron man children of the grave and paranoid he really yeah. cuts loose on those like children of the grave he's throwing in all these little guitar fills and dive yeah. bombs and stuff and i kind of wish yeah. he had maybe cut loose a little bit more on some of the other things but but yeah. like you said he adds enough he does enough that he plays his signature, like if there's a guitar solo, he plays the signature lick, like you think of War Pigs, for instance, some of the signature lines. But then in the spots where he could sort of interject his own thing, he does. So he plays enough of it that he's respecting the song, right. but he's also interjecting some of his personality. And uh, yeah, so there's a good balance <clears throat> between the two things. And I, I appreciate that. Like you said, the band, uh, this is a small club. This is a, uh, this is only, they're only playing this, this, these two shows for the express purpose of putting this record together. So the band isn't dressed up. They're not in their usual stage clothes. Uh, Ozzy shows up. He's got a folding chair. He's got a notebook. He's reading the lyrics as he's, as he, you know, he's, as he's singing them, he's reading them off of this, this notebook. So it's, it's, it's a relatively informal thing. 
But when it when it's all mixed, Max Norman gets his hands on it. He basically produces it. He gets the overdub vocal tracks. He, you know, decides which uh, performances of the two nights he's going to pull from. Puts it all together. I mean, it sounds it sounds great. Um, so a lot of credit would go to Max Norman for, for whipping this thing, as you said, into shape in a in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, the other thing that I think is important in the backstory of this is that there was, in addition to the, fulfilling the contractual obligation to Jet Records, there was also the desire to, Black, Black Sabbath was going to, they were working on or set to release a live album. And Sharon was aware of that and wanted to make sure that Speak of the Devil came out before Live Evil. And it did. It came out a month before. Um, so that was, a, I mean, th that only further extended the rivalry of the two camps, you know, and which, which led itself to, to fans being possessive and myself included. I mean, I, I wasn't very, uh, I didn't really embrace the Dio Sabbath as much as I, I did Ozzy solo. Um, but this sort of thing kind of lent itself to that friction in general, not only from Black Sabbath to Ozzy, Ozzy to, to Black Sabbath, but to the, to the fans too. It, it indicated that there was a bit of rivalry. It, 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 rather than promoting something that would be more conducive to both sides existing individually, doing their own thing, it, it promoted this sort of rivalry and I'm not sure why that was necessary. Again, it goes back to, to Sharon and her, um, her ethics, but uh, it was there. And, and it was the, the whole thing about the five days was the five days of rehearsal established because they were in a race to get this out as soon as they could. Um, as it was, it was, this was released in November, Live Evil came out in December. So this was already, on the store shelves by the time Live Evil came out, which was what the intention was. And it, there it was. Uh, in the US, I think Speak of the Devil outsold Live Evil considerably. Uh, in the UK, not so much. I think, I think Live Evil did better than, than Speak of the Talk of the Devil. Um, but Yeah, and it should be noted also that I, I, I totally agree with you that they were trying to beat Sabbath, you know, to, to this. And uh, back at this time, and this is, it's easy to forget this in this day and age where you can go on YouTube and hear any live performance anytime, anywhere. And with so many live albums out, but live albums were a big deal yeah. back then. And for Black Sabbath, Live Evil was... Now, we've already discussed Live at Last. Live at Last was an album that the band did not, an album that the band did not endorse. So for all purposes, Live Evil was the first official live Black Sabbath album. And so that should have been met with a lot of triumph and fanfare and lead up to. And some of that is stolen here with yeah. Speak of the Devil showing up a month earlier, doing all Black Sabbath songs. Right. doing you know iron man and paranoid and all these other songs yeah. that you knew were going to be on live evil and on top of that the fans they have this 
sentiment for, okay, these are the songs that Ozzy sang on. And then you've got Ronnie coming in a month later with, with his versions. And it just, right. It just created this whole thing yeah. at the time, you know, you're seeing advertisements for speak of the devil. You're seeing advertisements for live evil. I would say that Ozzy's career is, is at this point, like a, like a rocket, you know, yeah. going up. Whereas I would say Sabbaths is starting to level off in some ways, as much as I love mob rules and it, I believe it was a success for the band. Ozzy was, uh, Ozzy was getting more popular by the minute at this, yeah. at this time in his yeah. career. And the Sabbath camp is, is a little bit more shaky. So yeah, for this, for this to come out and I mean, as a kid, I was just, I, I was happy to hear these songs, happy to hear Ozzy singing these songs, uh, I would have, I, I'm sure I would, I would have liked a, a live album with Randy Rhodes at this time. You, you never, you didn't even know at this time, if anything existed with Randy Rhodes. Uh, well, you talked about the King Biscuit. So we, we were, we were aware of that. I remember hearing the King Biscuit. You, you probably heard it in and around yeah. the same time I did. We heard it on the radio. So we knew that there was live Randy recorded, um, whether or not we'd actually have it uh, as a release, as an official release. No, there was no indication of that, especially now since this came out, it seemed like who knows, but it didn't seem very promising. Uh, there was a bootleg floating around, bootleg vinyl called Bat's Head Soup that I had. Yeah, like, very popular like, one, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people had that. And then speed was off. It was a little bit fast, but I mean, it was pretty cool. Made Randy sound even even better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember that thinking like, again, this is the innocence of youth. Thought, oh well you know there's this live radio thing but that was done on the radio they can't release it you know i didn't understand yeah. at the time how these things worked and 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 it did, did, you know and and so you know speak of the devil it did sort of uh you know it, it i don't know i yeah. i was into it i liked this i liked the song list i thought uh, you know the energy of the band and if we did we haven't mentioned tommy aldridge yet you know tommy aldridge comes in and he, yeah. he's pretty, uh, you know, pretty upfront in the mix and driving these songs. Uh, you know, yeah. the band talks about how Aldridge was the most familiar with these songs because his uh, past group, with Black Oak, Arkansas, yeah. had toured with Sabbath. So yeah. he had heard a lot of these songs. So he was kind of the guy that the band leaned on, uh, you know, Gillis and Rudy Sarzo leaned on Aldridge a little bit because uh, he knew the songs a little bit better. But uh, it's cool hearing him do like the wizard and symptom of the universe. And yeah, he's kind of a different feel than, than Bill Ward, but uh, definitely he's, yeah, he's more double, double bass drum driven. And you can hear that he, especially in the wizard where, you know, the way Bill Ward plays uh, single kick, it's obvious uh, if you're a drummer that, you know, there's triplets with probably kick floor and rack Tom, uh, Tommy Aldridge goes in with a double kick and it sounds really cool. It kind of gives it more of a modern feel uh, for 1982 and brings the songs, kind of makes them a little bit more updated. Not that that was really necessary, but, you know, when talking about how Brad Gillis would take equal share of, you know, his personality and put it into the song as well as the traditional way that it was played. I, I think Tommy Aldridge does that too. You know, he's, he's on point and he's on time. The, the fills that you expect to be there are there. Though he takes a little liberty with doing them his way, 
And I think that's cool. Um, yeah, so not to take anything away from Tommy Aldridge either. We mentioned Brad Gillis, we mentioned Rudy Sarzo. Definitely Tommy Aldridge uh, sounds sounds really good on this too. And the mix, the way that, coming back to Max Norman with the with the really great job he did on this mix, everything's very audible. Um, live albums can be hit or miss sometimes. There's There's good ones and there's ones that just sort of sound kind of dull and lifeless. And um, this one does have kind of a, a good energy, a good feel to it. Getting to your point about live albums and, and how important they were in the 80s, you're right. I mean, I it was exciting buying a live album. Most of the time they were a gatefold, they were a double album. There was a lot of stuff in it. There was a cool album cover inside the gatefold. You'd have some pictures. It's almost like it was like, like a a tour book in a way that you know if you at our age i mean if you were if you're fortunate enough to go to a concert it was really exciting and it was kind of like the be all end all and if you did go to a concert in and around that time one of the things you were usually inclined to, to buy there other than a t-shirt would be a tour book well you didn't have to go to a concert to get this sort of thing this takeaway you could just go to your record store buy a live album hear what the band sounded like live so you thought, uh, without really being aware of all the studio trickery that was involved in most live albums at the time. And it, it didn't really matter, I guess. The less we knew, the better off we were. But the thing that was cool about the live album was the package, the gatefold, you know, the inner sleeves. Uh, sometimes there'd be, you know, an order form for merchandise or there'd be, it was a way for uh, record labels or, or, or maybe the bands themselves that they had that kind of control over the product to give the fans a little little something extra like well we know these aren't new songs you've heard these songs before and and it's a live album we hope you enjoy it but you know here's here's this this pack the treatment on the packaging so you feel like you've really got something really cool and I, I think we usually were pretty satisfied with that and it was a great the 70s and 80s were the last great era of live albums because yeah. As you pointed out, we're in a situation now where we can go on anytime we want YouTube and <laughs> yeah. listen to, you know, something that was recorded last night. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes, I mean, I miss some concerts and I'm like, ah, I'll just check it out on YouTube tomorrow night. <laughs> Doesn't happen very often, but. And often live albums tended to be doubles. So you got a lot of songs. I remember I had this on cassette. And, you know, I, I used to have this thing where you could see how much cassette, uh, the tape was spooled inside it, you yeah. know, and I was like, yeah, man, you know, you're getting all this, all this music in one cassette. And, and, and back then, the way and I just looked this up while you were talking, Diary of a Madman was released in November of 81. Speak of the Devil was released in November of 82. And Bark at the Moon was released in November of 83. Hmm. You were getting at new Aussie products yeah. once a year. And for some bands, I looked when it was probably about a year relationship with, with mob rules, but it wasn't uncommon back then for, you know, you'd get a live album maybe nine months after a studio record. So it was kind mm -hmm. of like this. I, I sometimes think back to that era and think like, man, you know, there was just so much stuff coming out and bands used to release stuff once basically once a year so a year yeah. seems like a long time but when you think about the modern age here where man it takes everybody five six seven years between albums back then you were getting these things at a clip and you get speak of the devil and then a month later you were getting live evil you know and then a couple months after that you were getting the new judas priest record and then you know these albums were just kind of felt like they were every time you turned around 
you know, there was, there was something new coming out and it really kept you engaged. You know, yeah. It just did sort of feel like, uh, you know, it was something that just kept you interested in Ozzy. And I think it did do some, sometimes live records can sort of be afterthoughts and stop gaps, mm-hmm. but sometimes live records can really be something that propels an artist's uh, career yeah. forward. Oh, think for of sure. Kiss, you know, Kiss, Kiss wow, yeah. Cheap Save Trick record. at Budokan and, and stuff like that. And I wouldn't say, I, w- I wouldn't put Speak of the Devil on, on par with something like Budokan or Alive too. But where Ozzy was at that time, this album did keep the momentum going. And being with what had happened with Randy passing away, you talked about this at the end of the Diary of a Madman episode that Brad came in and it was just sort of this stabilizing thing. Like he's Brad Gillis seems like a super nice guy, a real down to earth guy. He kind of comes in and he's able to calm everything down. We had met, I mentioned in the, in the intro, we really didn't talk about this. Maybe this is something we can give a moment to because it is, something that gets confused a lot in history. Uh, Randy dies. Bernie Torme comes into the band. Bernie Torme came out of Ian Gillen's solo band, Gillen. And I don't think it was ever really intended for Bernie Torme to be a permanent situation. I think he was a come in, get us through what you can get us through. But for some reason, history has, and this may come from Ozzy. I think this has come from the Ozzy camp that, oh, well, Bernie Torme couldn't handle playing in front of a large audience, which is silly because he had, was, you know, Gillen maybe wasn't quite as popular as, as Ozzy, but he was still playing on big stages with Ian Gillen. It wasn't like he was some unknown that had come from, had never played on a stage before. So, you know, Bernie Torme sometimes does, doesn't get the credit that he deserves for coming in on basically with no notice, you know, flying over, getting them through those, what was it like five, six, maybe seven shows or uh, something. We, he, when he was approached, he was, he was reluctant to do it. And this is what we talked about in, in the diary podcast. He was reluctant to do it, but needed the work and he, uh, he agreed to do it uh, for the money. And uh, again, he was another, another artist that worked with Ozzy that said that he enjoyed working with Ozzy the management not so much there were some weird things going on there and it was another reason why he did not want to make a long-term commitment to this situation when once he got in he never regretted his choice to to limit it to a certain amount of time because he said that every night with the band and with it being so fresh from uh the tragedy in Florida with 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 Randy that every night before the show was like a wake um, then of course he didn't know Randy, so he wasn't feeling the emotional impact that the, that the other members, the other band members were, but he could recognize it. And it was one of the strange dynamic to go from that, um, emotional situation where people were still in mourning and then to turn it on in an instant for a, a crowd that wasn't there for a wake. I mean, they were there for a, a celebration, a rock and roll party, you know, they, they wanted to have a good time. They weren't there for a wake. And it's one of the things he noticed and made it kind of difficult to uh, to adapt to that situation. And uh, on record, he said, you know, when the time was up, uh, I was I was good. I'm good to go. I'm done. However, he did stick around uh, when Brad first started. He did stick around. He would be backstage in case there was anything 
you know, that would that would happen where maybe Brad messed up or, or or whatever. He so he was he was there. He didn't like leave, give Brad Gillis the high five on his way out. He he did hang in there for a few performances while Brad was in the band. Um, so yeah, I had never heard that Bernie Tormek. I never heard that. I I don't doubt it. I, that does does definitely sound like something from the Ozzy camp that they would, you know, say something like that that Bernie Torme couldn't handle it. Um, I, I did hear something though about his stage fright or his, his apprehension to play in front of large audiences, and and subsequently, I don't think Bernie Torme ever really went on to do anything with. And not that he didn't have the talent, but after Gillen and the short stint with Ozzy, I don't recall him. Then a couple solo albums, maybe. Yeah, I, I yeah. With anybody. Yeah, and he was just some very his his style was very. He's he's a great guitar player, but his style is just you know different. But yeah. But then Brad comes in, and and you know the Speak of the Devil album is sort of this. If that album wasn't there, would they have been able to get back on their feet? Would they have been able to get another guitar player and this close to? you know, the tragedy of Randy passing and everything. And, and would they have been able to get somebody in there and get a new studio album out? Maybe not, you know, maybe this live album is kind of, you know, it's, it served to keep, have a new product out there to keep Ozzy's name out there again, back in this day and age, you needed to have something out about every year yeah. to keep people, you know, keep people's attention. And, and, you know, Brad Gillis seems like he was a good guy easy to get along with and is it you know the rest of the guys in the band are rudy sarzo would leave after speak of the devil speak of the devil kind of being the last draw for him mm -hmm. as well as you know never being able to fully recover from you know randy's passing and tommy aldridge moves on also uh so you know again the speak of the devil is when you sort of put it in the context of of everything going on you have ozzy's career exploding but you also have this tragedy in the band and just all this stuff going on and it's it's an album that just has a really uh interesting backstory you know behind the scenes story to it yeah and at the at this time i think even while they were recording this they rudy and brad like you mentioned they were already pretty much resigned from the band as far as moving forward uh, Rudy had already recorded or was he was approached by members of Quiet Riot to contribute a couple songs. I think that was what it was initially intended to be when he started with Quiet Riot. But then he was looking to get out of the situation with Ozzy. And that's when he joined Quiet Riot. Yeah. Uh, Brad Gillis, likewise, I, I'm pretty sure at the time that this album, Speak of the Devil, was recorded, they had already... Night Ranger had already signed a, a deal with Boardwalk Records that he was playing the demos for Rudy, the Night Ranger record, yeah. Dawn, Dawn Patrol, what would be Dawn Patrol, he was playing the demos for Rudy. They were excited about moving on. And maybe in some ways that kind of gave them the, the little lift that they needed to get through this, because if there wasn't any promise of anything that would be more enjoyable than the situation that they were currently in, and Ron on all reports, pretty unhappy with it. There hadn't been something to kind of give them a little bit of, of a lift. Maybe it, it, it may not have sounded as good as it did. No. Yeah, and everybody kind of had, you mentioned Rudy Sarzo, you know, he 
I'm not exactly sure the timeline. I think mental health came out in 83, but I think it was around this time that they were doing Speak of the Devil that uh, he, he was asked to play bass on the song Thunderbird, which was a song written for Randy and his passing. And when he came and played on that, they said, why don't you play on some of the other songs? And although Rudy does not play on every song on Metal Health, Chuck Wright plays, I think, on three or maybe four of the songs. I think it's like two. I think it's only two. Yeah, he plays the song Metal Health. He plays, uh, I can't remember what else, but yeah, it's like two, maybe three Mm -hmm. uh, songs. Uh, So, yeah, it's, you know, Rudy, everybody then kind of goes their separate ways and and maybe in some ways it's you know and that might be another reason why this this album isn't you never hear any songs from this pop up on an Ozzy greatest hits it's it, Ozzy doesn't talk about it and maybe part of it too is it's just all this stuff that we're talking about that surrounded this album it just felt like you know then after this maybe it was a bit of a reset they then properly take the time to look for a full-time, you know, replacement guitar player. They reassemble Bob Daisley comes back into the band. Actually, well, Tommy Aldridge is, is still there uh, for Bark at the Moon, but uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, again, it's an interesting album that. Uh, There's a lot of ground to cover if we wanted to do Bark at the Moon, because now we're starting to get into this thing with Tommy Aldridge. Tommy Aldridge is in and out uh bob daisley does come back but there's there's a lot lot to that but yeah just to skim the surface dude this is this is the last album this this marks the end of an era in a way even though uh it's not with randy um but it, it definitely kind of like puts an end cap to this point in history and for me personally this was the last record that i really the last aussie record that i really got excited about um, that's not to say that I wasn't excited or when Born or Bark at the Moon came out that I was, but I was, it, it as I've said before, I, I, it's not one of my favorite Ozzy records. So this is the end cap for me I'm moving forward with Ozzy solo stuff. It would move from this point on to be hit or miss for me, whereas everything from this back was real consistent i like every song on it they're strong albums you know they're they're great from after this not so much more on that when we do our bark at the moon episode (laughs) all right well let's take a look at the album i mean you know maybe we won't look at this quite the same way we would a studio album uh, but let's let's take a look at it. Maybe we'll take it side by side here. We've got on side one, we had Symptom of the Universe, Snowblind, and Black Sabbath. I think Symptom of the Universe is a great opener. Again, at the time, this felt like a deep cut, a song that, you know, I'd love the Sabotage album. So opening up with Symptom of the Universe mm-hmm. is an awesome opener, that riff and everything, and Tommy Aldridge's, uh, you know, aggressive drums, Snowblind, of course, sounds great here um Mm -hmm. great feel to it and uh even black sabbath really works here there's there's a lot of ambience to this mix like you really it sounds like you're in the room so you're hearing some of the reverb of the walls 
in the concert hall. And so I think Black Sabbath works really well in this. And I remember there's uh, well, one thing I remember at the, before the song Black Sabbath, Ozzy goes, this is the first song that I ever wrote, you know, not, not mentioning, <laughs> failing to mention that the other guys in Black Sabbath had a hand in <laughs> writing it also. Uh, but then he also does some cool things. I don't remember exactly what it is, but like he does these like a, yeah like he makes these like yeah. noises or something where there's like some reverb yeah. on it and Aldridge there's a lot of like it's just a very open spacey oh. sounding thing and I actually think this is a great great version of yeah of that song so so what do you think of what's your thoughts on side one yeah I, I pretty much echo your what you've said I, I I agree I mean I think it was a good decision I'm not sure who was responsible for the decision I guess it doesn't really matter at this point but I think it was a good decision to record it in a smaller venue I think a lot of the intimacy is conveyed on these recordings and it, for home listening that it, it really works um yeah something in the universe got, has a lot of energy uh right out of the gate Brad Gillis sounds great it's got you know the guitar really cuts through it sounds cool Snowblind's one of my one of my favorite Black Sabbath songs. Um, this doesn't disappoint here. Ozzy's voice sounds clear. Whatever they needed to do to get him to sound good on this, they succeeded. He sounds really good on this, as he does with the whole album, but particularly on this. Black Sabbath, yeah, you're right. Um, I really enjoy this version on here. Um, it is thick in atmosphere. Um, sounds really cool. It's when you really, I, I think the listener can really take advantage of the venue that it was recorded in and the atmosphere that was contained within that not too big not too small just right has the right room sound i guess you could consider it that but it, it makes it really dark i like the way that, that brad plays it i like all the way the way all the musicians sound they sound throughout the entire album they they sound confident they are professional musicians no matter what you want to say about you know, what was going on in, in the camp at the time. These are, these are pros. These are guys that can learn a double album's worth of material in five days and not just learn it, not just limp their way through the songs, but actually perform it really well. Black Sabbath is one song where that, I think, makes it, it's really obvious. That's from the yeah, and, and, and you mentioned earlier about how you can hear the audience and like in the quiet parts of this song, you can like yeah. just hear random people kind of in the audience yeah. in there, you know, something yeah. yelling out every yeah. now and then. I just think that that's fantastic. I love, if you're going to make cool. a live album, you know, it doesn't have to be over the top where, like you said, you know, they're making it sound like it's Wembley Stadium. But I, I like that more thing where, yeah, you, it sounds like you can hear somebody, one guy yelling in the back of the room. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think that's, yeah. that's awesome. Because, I mean, really, I guess the purpose of a live album is that you're taking a, a live show home with you. You know, you're going to the record store circa 1982. You're buying the record. You're taking it home. You know, you're listening to it at home. Maybe you have the lights dim. Maybe you're getting into a, you know, putting yourself in the, in, in the right environment or maybe even the right frame of mind to listen to it. But you want to be in that moment that was on record here. And uh a lot, some of the live albums from, from this time period didn't really do that. I think Kiss Alive definitely does. Live at Budokan is another one you mentioned. I think that does. But there's some that sound a little sterile to me. And I'm not going to mention any in particular because it's sort of irrelevant at this point. But the, where this works is that it does bring in a, I'm experiencing the live show at home vibe. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. Like you're standing there in the middle of the room watching. Yeah. In the middle of the hall. Yeah. 
All right, well, side B then, we've got Fairies Wear Boots, War Pigs, and The Wizard. And uh, these all rock out. I think the Fairies worth with Fairies Wear Boots, uh, Tommy Aldridge's fills, I think are really cool in that. Same thing in War Pigs. Mm-hmm. War Pigs yeah. has got a lot of energy to it, like when it goes into the, you know, politicians. That's pretty, pretty mm-hmm. driving pretty hard. And they, they're yeah. jamming out pretty hard at the end of that song there. Gillis really kind of stretching out. And uh, The Wizard's a lot of fun. Again, this is a deep cut. Uh, Last time we played this was at the Fillmore East, you know. Uh, Funny little banter with Ozzy uh, before the song. Fillmore East, man. (laughs) And he said something something like, we're goopy, huh? Yeah, we used to do drugs and groupies or something. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, maybe. Uh, Maybe that's what he says. I don't know. I've never been able to figure it out, and I don't really care that much. Right. Yeah, and I think it's 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 before Snowblind too, where he does this. The Madman is back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, side B here, you know, yeah, it's 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 they're rocking hard on this side. There's a, there's there's a lot of energy. Uh, all cool stuff. Yeah. So side two. <clears throat> um, yeah, this is where I first noticed that that Brad really takes some of the uh, initiative to to play things a little bit in his puts it in his wheelhouse a little bit while tastefully you know balancing things so that we we recognize the things we expect and want to hear from the traditional black sabbath versions but he just pushes it a little bit in his own puts his own personality into it to make it make updated a little bit and make it sound like an aussie aussie record uh fairies wear boots that's where that's where it happens first. Uh, I hear it in War Pigs. The Wizard is is really cool to hear hear the Wizard live. Um, and as we, we talked about, I don't think you know it's like the first time he's ever played. It's the first time he's played it since the Fillmore East. I don't like. I don't remember him ever Black Sabbath ever playing the Wizard. But here it is, and it, it's cool. I mean, even if you're like at the time, if you were like looking at it and thinking oh well these are all pretty popular songs oh but wait the wizard wow that's that's a deep cut cool you know i want to check that out so i'm gonna buy the record uh it was cool that they did they did did go into a deep cut with the wizard and sounds cool i like how tommy takes bill ward's uh fills and you know updates them a little bit yeah pretty cool all right, side three is NIB Sweet Leaf and Never Say Die. It's interesting, NIB, if you read interviews with Rudy Sarzo and Brad Gillis, they, I think it was Rudy that says, like, you know, see if you can spot the mistakes we, we make in some of the songs. And this is one that, that jumps out at me. Uh, it's, it's towards the end when Brad Gillis is soloing. And Rudy starts doing the dun, 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 but that pattern that riff pattern but yeah. but gillis goes back into the da 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 and he jumps out of it really quick yeah. and just goes back into sewing i mean none of it matters yeah. and i much prefer you know to me that's cool it's yeah. kind of like it just shows you that it was that it was a live recording that these yeah. guys were just going for that i'll take that any day over a live album that's been redone in the studio. Yeah. Uh, so I, this is another one. I think uh, Brad sounds great on, on NIB sweet leaf. 
a little bit of a deep cut. The really the, the big one on this side for me is never say die. I think that that's, that comes across really well yeah. in this setting. It's a song that Sabbath never did after the never say die tour. It's a song that if Ozzy could still hit these notes, I think they could have brought this back during the reunion era and it could have worked uh, here. It's just got tons of fire and it, to me, sounds great. It's the highlight of side three for me. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's probably the highlight for me, too, on side three. I really like it. It sounds, in spite of, you know, the baggage that's associated with that album, the way that he he sings it, the way that the band delivers it on this album makes it sound just as much, just as important as any of the other songs, which are far more classic. Uh, Sweet is pretty cool. Uh you know they 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 take some liberties on the on the original format of the song and they don't have the, the you know the drum part the real wind out thing going on yeah yeah which is a little disappointing but I like the way that they do it I, I like the way that they they change things a little bit and and getting back to you know the, the little mistake that Rudy says you know see if you can spot the mistake that's cool I mean it's live music. You know, live albums are, are, you know, for the most part, generally manufactured in such a way where they don't want there to be any mistakes, you know, because it's one of those things when you're when you're witnessing it, when you're at a show, you don't notice the mistakes most of the time because there's other things that sort of distract you. You know, you're taking in the visual aspect and you're just basically, you know, you're taking in the sights and sounds around you when you only have the audio version to listen to, then you're you're more focused on what you're hearing. And so a lot of times people will, will clean up live albums. I'm glad that they, they didn't. I don't know if they could have. They, they probably could have. They probably could have taken either the afternoon yeah. performance and or, or the following night or one of the two nights that they didn't use. But I, I like that they, it, it's to their credit that they left it the way that it is. Makes it sound live. And that. Never Say Die, I've always felt like is a song that sounds like it could have maybe been an Ozzy solo band song. It's kind of has that uplifting thing that, that Ozzy would do with stuff like Flying High Again. And he would certainly do yeah. later on as, as time went on. So it, 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 it works really well uh, here as an Ozzy solo thing. All right, then side four, we wrap it up with Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, Iron Man going right into Children of the Grave and Paranoid. Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath is cool. They actually play the whole song and mm -hmm. uh, that that's pretty neat. Not something that I don't think they ever, outside of after the 70s, and they didn't even play this song a lot in the 70s. So it's sort of a deep cut here. And also an interesting note, I mentioned this, uh, Karen, I don't know if I mentioned this, that it, it's the Black Sabbath, there's certain Black Sabbath albums that are tuned down. So for me, people who aren't musicians out there, they tune the strings on the guitar lower. Those albums would be Master of Reality, uh, Volume 4, and Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, and some parts of uh, Sabotage. And what when Technical Ecstasy came around, they started tuning to normal pitch then. So instead of having the strings lower, they were tuned back to a standard tuning. And what that did then when they played the old songs that were tuned down, if you watch the Black Sabbath Never Say Die live video, Ozzy's any any song, like when he has to sing Snowblind, he's singing it three steps higher than the studio recording, which just puts a tremendous amount of strain on his voice. Those songs are already high to begin with. And in my opinion, that's when Ozzy started to damage his voice. But what 
Brad Gillis does here. And Randy did the same thing. He doesn't tune his guitar down for like Children of the Grave is a song that's tuned down. So instead of tuning his guitar down, he just plays the correct pitch, but he plays it an octave higher. So that main riff, instead of dun, 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 being down low, it's dun, 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 dun. It's done up higher on the guitar and it still works. It still sounds great. And I think that that's cool that Brad and Randy did the same thing, that they, they, they didn't just play it. Normally, you'd want to play off the open string, even though it's tuned down. But here they reshift their hands on the fingerboard so that it's still so that Ozzy doesn't have to sing higher. <laughs> and yeah. it sort of changes a little bit the way they, they approach some of these riffs. And it gives it an interesting little sound. If you're a guitar player out there, you may have picked up on this. And Sabbath Bloody Sabbath has that. So on the part that, dun, dun, da, 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 you know, it isn't it doesn't have quite as low of a chunky of a sound as it did on the uh, you know Sabbath Bloody Sabbath studio album, but but it still sounds really cool. Uh, we talked about this earlier that Iron Man, Children of the Grave, Paranoid. It sounds like they cut loose a little bit more on these, especially Brad. Children of the Grave, he's doing all these like guitar fills and harmonics yeah. with his whammy bar, and Paranoid is the same thing. Uh, you know, it's like a trademark of Ozzy. It, you know, yeah. just, at this, I forget what Ozzy says before. Like, I'm going like, to close it my trademark. Paranoid. Yeah, exactly. And they rip through it, man. It's just like, yeah. you know, ton of energy. You know, maybe one of the cool things about this, the fact that this was an album that five days of rehearsal, two shows, it isn't like we're typical situation when bands do a live record. They tend to do it towards the end of the tour so that the songs are all very well rehearsed uh -huh. and well played. No. But there's, you know, let's let's face it, when early doing these songs this fresh gives it a certain freshness, a certain energy to it that maybe if they had toured this for six months or something and had played these songs 80 times, it wouldn't have had maybe the same sort of energy, the same sort of uh, on the edge of your seat type of feel to some of these things. And I, and I think you really hear that in Iron Man, Chilling in the Grave and Paranoid. They just have this, this real kind of flying energy to them that I think is just really fun. It's really great. And Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, you mentioned earlier that three of these songs were pulled from an, the afternoon, no audience uh, safety show that Max wanted them to play. And, and Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, we, we know that Sabbath Bloody Sabbath is one of those because of the live bootlegs from the Ritz. Uh, they don't play Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. So people just deduce that, of course, then it must have been done at the afternoon show. But uh, cool way to take it out. You know, I, I think it uh, takes the album already a high energy live album. It seems to take it up, notch it up just a slight bit more here for the last three songs, especially on side four. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about how the band was surprised that their versions of Iron Man, Children of the Grave and Paranoid ended up on the record. But um, and, and they kind of lament the fact that they didn't really put in their as strong a performance as they had, they would have liked to. But man, I. I think it's perfect. I think it, it, it gives it a uh, grand finale. And I think it's more about the energy than it is about playing everything perfect. And it's really, I mean, it's at the, it's at the, the last side, the last three songs, Iron Man goes right into Children of the Grave. And then of course, Ozzy introduces Paranoid, but perfect placement for these songs, you know, 
And the fact that they were sort of like flying by the seat of their pants are not necessarily, that usually kind of like indicates that it's like a nervous thing. This is, this is, it, they, they sound confident. They sound like, okay, the pressure's off. We don't have to worry about this being on the album. Let's just do it out here. We, we're going to take it out now. And then yeah. just going for it. Um, but that's cool. I mean, it sounds great. I mean, that's exactly the vibe that I, I want to hear, you know, I don't want to hear it perfect. I want to hear it like in the moment. And, uh, yeah, and it is. It's a really, it's an, I guess that's, you know, if, 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 if I were to wrap up the thoughts on this, this album, it's a real in the moment record. It captures yeah. a moment in time with this band. It also captures a moment in time in where this transitional period for Ozzy moving out of the, you know, Randy dies this in this bridge in between the Randy Rhodes era to the next phase in, in Ozzy's career. And it is just kind of like a snapshot in time. And it makes it kind of all the more fascinating when you read about the, the backstory. It's, it's an album that it has a real story behind it. You can make a movie just about the making of this album. So it's, it's, it's pretty interesting in that sense that it just isn't your typical live album that was like, yeah, we were on tour and we recorded we recorded the, some shows towards the end yeah. of the tour. You know, this this album really has a, has a story behind it, and it makes yeah, it all the more true. unique and uh, and special because of that. So, yeah, those are my final thoughts on the record. You got some final thoughts on Speak of the Devil? Nah, not really. I think we covered it. I think we hit all the major points. Um, yeah, it, it's cool, it, and it's it's you know, of course, we, we mentioned Live Evil, and I guess we'll, that that's going to be coming up next. There's a lot to talk about with that one and similarly it's uh it's got its own little movie involved drama and stuff around it yeah it's it's got its own challenges and and a lot of it's it's drama as well so it's kind of kind of curious the way that these two uh these two careers kind of ran parallel in some ways it's sort of ironic it's a real turning points in both these bands careers for sure yeah Yep. All right. Well, there you go, Darren. Like Darren said, uh, the next next time you hear from us, we are going to be discussing uh, Live Evil. And that, that, like you said, is an album that, that's got a lot of uh, stories uh, mm-hmm. behind it and a lot of uh, mystery and uh, uh, certain things clouded in, in history, <laughs> fuzzy memories and yep. d- different stories and everything. So that's, that's going to be a fun one uh, to talk about. All right. Well, we'd like to thank everybody again for for listening to the podcast. Uh, Please head over to Facebook and look for Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast on Facebook over there. You can leave some comments there. And uh, thank you for your support. And we will see you next time.